Part 2. Money Changes Everything. Chapter 12. Something unusual was going on at Jim Simons's hedge fund in 2001. Profits were piling up as Renaissance began digesting new kinds of information. The team collected every trade order, including those that hadn't been completed, along with annual and quarterly earnings reports, records of stock trades by corporate executives, government reports, and economic predictions and papers. Simons wanted more. Can we do anything with news flashes? He asked in a group meeting. Soon, researchers were tracking newspaper and newswire stories, internet posts, and more obscure data, such as offshore insurance claims, racing to get their hands on pretty much any information that could be quantified and scrutinized for its predictive value. The Medallion Fund became something of a data sponge, soaking up a terabyte or one trillion bytes of information annually, buying expensive disk drives and processors to digest, store, and analyze it all, looking for reliable patterns. There's no data like more data, Mercer told a colleague, an expression that became the firm's hokey mantra. Renaissance's goal was to predict the price of a stock or other investment at every point in the future, Mercer later explained. We want to know in three seconds, three days, three weeks, and three months. If there was a newspaper article about a shortage of bread in Serbia, for example, Renaissance's computers would sift through past examples of bread shortages and rising wheat prices to see how various investments reacted, Mercer said. Some of the new information, such as quarterly corporate earnings reports, didn't provide much of an advantage. But data on the earnings predictions of stock analysts and their changing views on companies sometimes helped. Watching for patterns in how stocks traded following earnings announcements and tracking corporate cash flows, research and development spending, share issuance, and other factors also proved to be useful activities. The team improved its predictive algorithms by developing a rather simple measure of how many times a company was mentioned in a news feed, no matter if the mentions were positive, negative, or even pure rumors. It became clear to Mercer and others that trading stocks bore similarities to speech recognition, which was part of why Renaissance continued to raid IBM's computational linguistics team. In both endeavors, the goal was to create a model capable of digesting uncertain jumbles of information and generating reliable guesses about what might come next, while ignoring traditionalists who employed analysis that wasn't nearly as data-driven. As more trading became electronic, with human market makers and middlemen elbowed out of the business, Medallion spread its moves among an expanding number of electronic networks, making it easier and more efficient to buy and sell. Finally, Simons was close to his original goal of building a fully automated system with little human interface. Staffers became excited about developing super short-term signals to trade in a matter of seconds or even less a method that would become known as high-frequency trading. Renaissance's computers proved too slow to beat others to the market, however. Medallion made between 150,000 and 300,000 trades a day, but much of that activity entailed buying or selling in small chunks to avoid impacting the market prices, rather than profiting by stepping in front of other investors. What Simons and his team were doing wasn't quite investing, but they also weren't flash boys. Whatever you wanted to call it, the results were extraordinary. After soaring 98.5% in 2000, 
the Medallion Fund rose 33% in 2001. By comparison, the S&P 500, the commonly used barometer of the stock market, managed a measly average gain of 0.2% over those two years, while rival hedge funds gained 7.3%. Simons' team was still flying under the radar of most in the investing world. As the Institutional Investor article in 2000 said, Chances are you haven't heard of Jim Simons, which is fine by him. Nor are you alone. Still, Brown and Mercer's system worked so well that researchers could test and develop new algorithms and plop them into their existing single trading system. New employees began identifying predictive signals in markets in Canada, Japan, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, and Hong Kong, as well as in smaller locales, including Finland, the Netherlands, and Switzerland. Foreign markets usually follow the U.S., but they don't move in lockstep. By combining signals from these new markets with Medallion's existing predictive algorithms in one main trading system, something remarkable seemed to happen. The correlations of Medallion's trades to the overall market dropped, smoothing out returns and making them less connected to key financial markets. Investment professionals generally judge a portfolio's risk by its sharp ratio, which measures returns in relation to volatility. The higher one's sharp, the better. For most of the 1990s, Medallion had a strong sharp ratio of about 2.0, double the level of the S&P 500. But adding foreign market algorithms and improving Medallion's trading techniques sent its sharp soaring to about 6.0 in early 2003, about twice the ratio of the largest quant firms and a figure suggesting there was nearly no risk of the fund losing money over a whole year. Simons's team appeared to have discovered something of a holy grail in investing. Enormous returns from a diversified portfolio generating relatively little volatility and correlation to the overall market. In the past, a few others had developed investment vehicles with similar characteristics. They usually had puny portfolios, however, no one had achieved what Simons and his team had, a portfolio as big as $5 billion delivering this kind of astonishing performance. The accomplishment opened the door to new possibilities. Peter Brown paced his office, determined to find a way to expand the hedge fund's equity bets. Brown remained haunted by the painful losses of early 2000, however, and how flummoxed he had been about how to react he wanted a way to protect the firm in case of an even greater market catastrophe. Brown was in luck. Banks were warming to Renaissance, sensing opportunity. In many ways, Simons's firm was a dream borrower, with returns that were huge, placid, and uncorrelated to the broader market. Simons had okayed Brown's plan to use more leverage to amplify its profits, making Renaissance an eager borrower just as homeowners take out mortgages to buy homes that are more expensive than they can afford with the money they have in the bank, so too do hedge funds like Medallion, as a way to boost profits, borrow money to accumulate larger investment portfolios than their capital would allow. Banks were loosening purse strings and lending standards. Global interest rates were falling, the housing market was revving up, and lenders were offering an array of aggressive loans, even for borrowers with scuffed or no credit history. By comparison, Renaissance seemed a safe bet, especially since it generally held an equal number of long and short trades, reducing potential risk in a market tumble. 
That's part of why Deutsche Bank and Barclays Bank began selling the hedge fund a new product called Basket Options that seemed a perfect solution to Brown's problems. Basket options are financial instruments whose values are pegged to the performance of a specific basket of stocks. While most options are valued based on an individual stock or financial instrument, basket options are linked to a group of shares. If these underlying stocks rise, the value of the option goes up. It's like owning the shares without actually doing so. Indeed, the banks were the legal owners of shares in the basket, but for all intents and purposes, they were Medallion's property. The fund's computers told the banks which stocks to place in the basket and how they should be traded. Brown himself helped create the code to make it all happen. All day, Medallion's computers sent automated instructions to the banks, sometimes an order a minute or even a second. After a year or so, Medallion exercised its options, claiming whatever returns the shares generated, less some related costs. The basket options were a crafty way to supercharge Medallion's returns. Brokerage and other restrictions place limits on how much a hedge fund can borrow through more traditional loans. But the options gave Medallion the ability to borrow significantly more than it otherwise was allowed to. Competitors generally had about $7 of financial instruments for each dollar of cash. By contrast, Medallion's option strategy allowed it to have $12.50 worth of financial instruments for every dollar of cash, making it easier to trounce the rivals, assuming it could keep finding profitable trades. When Medallion spied especially juicy opportunities, such as during a 2002 market downturn, the fund could boost its leverage, holding close to $20 of assets for each dollar of cash, effectively placing the portfolio on steroids. In 2002, Medallion managed over $5 billion, but it controlled more than $60 billion of investment positions, thanks in part to the options helping the fund score a gain of 25.8% despite a tough year for the broader market. The S&P 500 lost 22.1% in 2002, a year marked by the bankruptcies of internet companies and reverberations from the collapse of the trading and energy company Enron and the telecommunications giant WorldCom. The options also were a way of shifting enormous risk from Renaissance to the banks. Because the lenders technically owned the underlying securities in the basket options transactions, the most medallion could lose in the event of a sudden collapse was the premium it had paid for the options and the collateral held by the banks. That amounted to several hundred million dollars. By contrast, the banks faced billions of dollars of potential losses if Medallion were to experience deep troubles. In the words of a banker involved in the lending arrangement, the options allowed Medallion to ring-fence its stock portfolios, protecting other parts of the firm, including Laufer's still-thriving futures trading, and ensuring Renaissance's survival in the event something unforeseen took place. One staffer was so shocked by the terms of the financing that he shifted most of his life savings into Medallion, realizing the most he could lose was about 20% of his money. The banks embraced the serious risk, despite having ample reason to be wary. For one thing, they had no clue why Medallion's strategies worked, and the fund only had a decade of impressive returns. In addition, long-term capital management had imploded just a few years earlier, providing a stark lesson regarding the dangers of relying on murky models. Brown realized there was another huge benefit to the basket options. 
they enabled Medallion's trades to become eligible for the more favorable long-term capital gains tax, even though many of them lasted for just days or even hours. That's because the options were exercised after a year, allowing Renaissance to argue they were long-term in nature. Short-term gains are taxed at a rate of 39.5%, while long-term gains face a 20% tax. Some staffers were uncomfortable with the stratagem, calling it legal but wrong. But Brown and others relied on the thumbs-up they received from legal advisors. Several years later, the Internal Revenue Service would rule that Medallion had improperly claimed profits from the basket options as long-term gains. Simons, who had approved the transactions, along with other Renaissance executives, paid a whopping $6.8 billion less in taxes than they should have, the IRS said. In 2014, a Senate subcommittee said Renaissance had misused the complex structures to claim billions of dollars in unjustified tax savings. Renaissance challenged the IRS's finding, and the dispute was still ongoing as of the summer of 2019. Other hedge funds crafted their own ways to reduce taxes, some using versions of the basket options agreements. No one relied on them like Renaissance, though. By the early 2000s, the options had emerged as the firm's secret weapon, so important that Renaissance dedicated several computer programmers and about 50 staff members to ensuring a seamless coordination with the banks. Money is seductive, even to scientists and mathematicians. Slowly, Renaissance staffers, even those who had once been abashed about making so much cash, began to enjoy their winnings. A staffer developed a widget so they could see a running tally of their profits, and, once in a while, losses, in the corner of their computer screens. Moods began to shift with the changing figures. It was a rush, an employee says, but it was also distracting. Their spending picked up along with the returns. So many scientists bought mansions in a nearby area called Oldfield that it became known as the Renaissance Riviera. Simons had his 14-acre estate in East Setauket overlooking Long Island Sound, his picture windows providing a spectacular view of the herons on Conscience Bay. Henry Laufer paid nearly $2 million for a nearby five-bedroom, six-and-a-half-bathroom, Mediterranean-style estate on almost 10 acres, with more than 400 feet of his own frontage on the sound. Laufer spent another $800,000 to buy an adjacent 2.6-acre parcel combining them into a mega-property. In the same area, Simons's cousin, Robert Laurie, who had left academia for a senior position at the hedge fund, built an equestrian arena for his daughter, with arches so large a bridge into New York City had to be shut down to facilitate their journey to Long Island. Mercer's mansion was down a long dirt road with sand on all sides, overlooking Stony Brook Harbor. He and Diana decorated their living room with full-length portraits of their daughters, Heather Sue, Rebecca, and Genji. When the family hosted Heather Sue's blowout wedding, guests gawked at the colossal water fountain and gorgeous rose garden, while stepping around thousands of dead bugs killed for their comfort on the eve of the event. There were so many pictures and videos of Bob and Heather Sue, some guests joked they weren't sure who the groom was. Porsches, Mercedes, and other upscale cars took up more space in Renaissance's parking lot though Tauruses and Camrys still abounded. Some executives even took helicopters to dinner in New York City. In the lunchroom, someone affixed a number to an office refrigerator, 
the percentage of his compensation's most recent annual gain. When it fell, he told friends, he was going to quit. One day, as a few researchers sat around complaining about all the taxes they were paying, Simons walked past, a frown quickly forming on his face. If you didn't make so much money, you wouldn't pay so much in taxes, Simon said, before wandering away. They were getting so wealthy, researchers and others were paid millions or even tens of millions of dollars each year, and they were making just as much from their investments in medallion, that some felt a need to justify the gains. The Renaissance staff was largely former academics, after all, and some couldn't help question the outsized compensation. Do I deserve all this money? Most employees concluded that their heavy trading was adding to the market's liquidity, or the ability of investors to get in and out of positions easily, helping the financial system, though that argument was a bit of a stretch since it wasn't clear how much overall impact Renaissance was having. Others committed to giving their money away after they had built a sufficient treasure chest, while trying not to focus on how their expanding profits necessarily meant dentists and other investors were losing from their trades. There was an internal struggle, says Glenn Whitney, the senior executive who helped facilitate the firm's research. Brown had mixed feelings about his own accumulating riches. He had long battled anxieties about money, colleagues said, so he relished the big bucks. But Brown tried to shield his children from the magnitude of his wealth, driving a Prius and sometimes wearing clothing with holes. His wife, who had taken a job as a scientist at a foundation dedicated to reducing the threat from nuclear weapons, rarely spent money on herself. Still, it became hard to mask the money. Colleagues shared a story that once, when the Brown family visited Mercer's mansion, Brown's son, then in grade school, got a look at the scale of the Mercer home and turned to his father, a look of confusion on his face. Dad, don't you and Bob do the same thing? As their stock trading business thrived, Brown and Mercer assumed greater influence at the firm, while Laufer's power waned. The two groups seemed to operate at entirely different levels of urgency, just like their leaders. Laufer remained calm and measured, no matter the market. Members of his team came in, drank a cup of coffee or two, perused the Financial Times, and got to work. Their software was a bit clunky at times, unable to quickly test and implement trade ideas, or discover lots of new relationships and patterns, but the returns remained strong, even if they were stagnating. Laufer's gang never fully understood why Simons needed to grow the fund anyway. They were all making millions of dollars each year, so what was the big problem? Brown and Mercer's staffers often spent the night programming their computers, competing to see who could stay in the office longest, then rushing back in the morning to see how effective their changes had been. If Brown was going to push himself all day and sleep by his computer keyboard at night, his underlings felt the need to keep up. Brown disparaged his researchers, developing demeaning nicknames for everyone in the group, other than Mercer, and prodded each for even greater effort. But his staffers developed a certain pride in knowing they could handle his insults, and they assumed he mostly used them as motivational tools. Brown himself often looked pained, as if he wore the weight of the world on his shoulders, suggesting he cared as much as anyone about the work. He also could be exuberant and entertaining. A huge fan of Candide, Brown liked to sprinkle references to the French satire in his presentations, making staffers chuckle. Quietly, 
the team worked on a souped-up trading model capable of replacing the one used by the futures team. When they presented it to Simons, he was unhappy they had built their model in secret, but he agreed it should replace the one Laufer's team was using. By 2003, the profits of Brown and Mercer's stock trading group were twice those of Laufer's futures team, a remarkable shift in just a few years. Rewarding his ascending stars, Simons announced that Brown and Mercer would become executive vice presidents of the entire firm, co-managing all of Renaissance's trading, research, and technical activities. Once, Laufer had seemed Simons' obvious heir apparent. Now he was given the title of chief scientist and tasked with dealing with the firm's problem areas, among other things. Brown and Mercer were the firm's future. Laufer was its past. Over a lunch of cheeseburgers at Billy's 1890, a wood-paneled saloon in nearby Port Jefferson, Simons told Brown and Mercer he was thinking about retiring. You'll take over, Simons told them, saying he wanted them to become co-CEOs. As word leaked out, some employees began to panic. Brown's team could handle his invective, but others couldn't stand the guy. Once, on the phone with an employee in the New York office, where Renaissance handled its accounting and investors' relations duties, Brown lashed out in irritation. You're just stupid. As for Mercer, while he continued to have regular conversations with Brown, he rarely said anything in group settings. When he did, it often was to inflame. Mercer had long enjoyed debating underlings. Now he appeared to be outright provoking them, usually while in the Renaissance lunchroom. Often, Mercer zeroed in on left-leaning colleagues, chiefly Nick Patterson, a habit staffers began to refer to as Nick-baiting. Patterson generally enjoyed the back and forth. Sometimes it went a bit overboard, though. One day, Mercer insisted to Patterson that climate change worries were overblown, handing him a research paper written by a biochemist named Arthur Robinson and some others. Patterson took the paper home and studied it. It turned out Robinson was also a sheep rancher who co-founded a project to stockpile and then analyze thousands of vials of urine to improve our health, our happiness, and prosperity, and even the academic performance of our children in school. After reading the paper, Patterson sent Mercer a note that it was probably false and certainly politically illiterate. Mercer never responded. Mercer especially liked quantifying things, as if the only way to measure accomplishments, costs, and much else in society was through numbers, usually dollars and cents. Why do we need more than fines to punish people? He asked Whitney, the senior computer executive, who Mercer also enjoyed baiting. What are you talking about? Whitney responded. Some of Mercer's comments were downright abhorrent. Once, Magerman recalls, Mercer tried to quantify how much money the government spent on African Americans in criminal prosecution, schooling, welfare payments, and more, and whether the money could be used instead to encourage a return to Africa. Mercer later denied making the comment. Oddly, Mercer was a scientist who demanded robust arguments and definitive proof at the office, but he relied on flimsy data when it came to his personal views. One day, Mercer brought in research that purported to show that exposure to radiation had extended the lives of those living outside Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the years after the U.S. dropped atomic bombs on the cities, suggesting to him that nuclear war wasn't nearly as worrisome as widely assumed. 
the paper struck the researchers as unconvincing pseudoscience. Mercer was the most senior person in the lunchroom, so some staffers bit their tongues, unwilling to challenge the boss. Once, Mercer told a young researcher and avowed atheist he didn't believe in evolution, handing him a book that argued for creationism, though Mercer himself wasn't a believer in the divine. There isn't enough time to judge evolution's accuracy, Mercer told the employee. To most of the staff, even the targets of his baiting, Mercer was a provocateur, occasionally amusing, often annoying, but generally harmless. Their perspective would change. Simons wasn't ready to pass the baton to Brown and Mercer, but he assigned them more responsibilities, sometimes pulling the pair away from day-to-day -day trading. A new set of employees began to assert themselves, changing the company in fundamental ways. Eager to expand in the late 1990s and early 2000s, Renaissance sometimes deviated from its usual practice by hiring employees who had been at rival firms, many of whom were scientists with roots in Russia and Eastern Europe. Among them was Alexander Belopolsky, who had spent time at a unit of D.E. Shaw, the Quant Hedge Fund. It was a hiring decision that Nick Patterson had protested. It wasn't just that Belopolsky had worked on Wall Street. He fielded tough questions in his interview at Renaissance a bit too smoothly, Patterson felt, as if he had been coached. Other foreign-born scientists also demonstrated an uncanny ability to ace the kinds of challenging questions that usually stumped interviewees. After Whitney posed his favorite problem to a job candidate, he began receiving the same response. A dramatic pause, apparent confusion, then, suddenly, a stroke of brilliance and an absolutely beautiful solution. Oh, I have it. Later, Whitney realized someone had been feeding answers to the foreign-born recruits. They were real actors, Whitney says. I felt like a stooge. Medallion employees made an absolute fortune, but because the fund's size was capped at about $5 billion in 2003, staffers sometimes found it challenging to grow their compensation, leading to some tension. On Wall Street, traders are often most miserable after terrific years, not terrible ones, as resentments emerge. Yes, I made a ton, but someone wholly undeserving got more. At Renaissance, some of the newcomers launched whisper campaigns against well-paid colleagues, including Peter Weinberger, a legendary computer scientist. In 1996, Simons had hired Weinberger to work with Laufer in futures trading. A former head of computer science research at Bell Labs, Weinberger was famous for helping to develop the programming language called AUK. The W represented his last name. Behind his back, newcomers questioned Weinberger, saying his technique was antiquated and that he wasn't contributing. Yeah, he's famous, but what does he do, one sniffed. Weinberger left the firm in 2003. Some veterans had sympathy for the new staffers, despite their rough edges. Many had spent formative years living under communist rule, so it was understandable they'd be less open and trusting, the defenders argued. Sometimes, the foreign-born scientists shared tales about enduring hardship in their youth, and it wasn't like every member of the new breed was dissing older colleagues. The tenor of the firm was changing, though, and nervousness grew. David Magerman was unhappy once again. Never one to keep his opinions to himself, he wasn't going to start now. 
First, there was Simons's smoking. Yes, Simons was the pioneer of quantitative investing, a billionaire, and the founder and majority owner of his firm. But come on, enough with the smoking. Magerman felt it was exacerbating his asthma, leaving him coughing after meetings. He was determined to do something about it. This is too much. Jim, I called Human Resources to file an OSHA complaint, Magerman told Simons one day, referring to the federal agency governing workplace violations. This is illegal. Magerman said he'd no longer attend meetings if Simons kept smoking. Simons got the message and purchased a machine that sucked cigarette smoke from the air, which was enough to get Magerman to end his mini-boycott. Simons still employed a few old-school traders, something else that bothered Magerman. Simons believed in computer trading, but he didn't entirely trust an automated system in unstable markets, a stance Magerman couldn't understand. Sometimes, Magerman threw things to express his irritation, usually cans of Diet Coke, once a computer monitor. Eventually, Brown convinced Magerman the issue wasn't worth fighting over. Others at the firm became animated over more trivial issues. A few miles from Renaissance's East Setauket headquarters, close by West Meadow Beach, the longest public beach north of Florida, stood a row of 90 cottages. Renaissance employees owned some of the ramshackle wooden bungalows, which enjoyed views of Stony Brook Harbor. The firm also owned a cottage. They'd been built on illegally acquired public land, though, and the city made plans to demolish them. When a group emerged, backed by Renaissance staffers, to keep the cottages in private hands, Whitney, a former math professor who joined the company in 1997, became outraged. He started a website to support the city's demolition, while Magerman printed and handed out bumper stickers that said, Dump the Shacks. It's just wrong, Whitney insisted in the lunchroom. It's a public park. Mercer took an opposing stance, of course. What's the big deal? Mercer asked, needling Whitney and the others. Tensions grew. At one point, some Renaissance employees wouldn't let their kids play with Whitney's children. More than flimsy cottages seemed at stake. Whitney and others sensed Renaissance was shifting amid the influx of new staffers, becoming a less caring and collegial place. The shacks came down, but the anger lingered. In 2002, Simons increased Medallion's investor fees to 36% of each year's profits, raising hackles among some clients. A bit later, the firm boosted the fees to 44%. Then, in early 2003, Simons began kicking all his investors out of the fund. Simons had worried that performance would ebb if Medallion grew too big, and he preferred that he and his employees kept all the gains but some investors had stuck with Medallion through difficult periods and were crushed. Whitney, Magerman, and others argued against the move. To them, it was one more indication that the firm's priorities were changing. Among the most ambitious of the new employees was a mathematician and Ukraine native named Alexei Kononenko. At the age of 16, Kononenko earned a spot at Moscow State University moving to Moscow to study pure mathematics at the famed university. In 1991, before he could complete his studies, Kononenko and his family fled the USSR, joining a wave of emigrants impacted by the nation's rampant anti-Semitism. In 1996, Kononenko received his Ph.D. from Penn State, 
where he studied with respected geometer and fellow Russian immigrant Anatoly Katok. Later, Kononenko did postdoc work at the University of Pennsylvania. With colleagues, he wrote a dozen research papers, some of which proved influential, including one addressing the trajectory of billiard balls. Confident and outgoing, Kononenko was offered a coveted postdoc position at the Mathematical Sciences Research Institute, the renowned institution in Berkeley, California. When a colleague wished Kononenko congratulations, however, the young man appeared disappointed with his new position, rather than delighted. Alex was hoping to get a tenure-track offer from Princeton, Harvard, or the University of Chicago, which wasn't realistic at that point, recalls a fellow academic. He had achieved an awful lot, but he could have had more perspective and patience. Kononenko seemed to place a greater priority on money than his peers did, perhaps because he was focused on achieving financial security after dealing with challenging circumstances in the Soviet Union. They weren't shocked when Kononenko quit academia to join Renaissance. There, Kononenko quickly rose through the ranks, playing a key role in various breakthroughs in foreign stock trading. By 2002, Kononenko, who was thin, clean-shaven, and good-looking, with hair that showed signs of gray at the temples, was pocketing well over $40 million a year, colleagues estimated. About half from his pay and half from investing in medallion. He used some of his winnings to build an impressive art collection. Despite their mounting wealth, Kononenko and some of his newer colleagues grew unhappy. They complained that there were too many Deadwood employees who weren't pulling their weight and were being paid way too much. What did they even contribute? A newcomer was overheard asking about some of Renaissance's senior executives. Some even viewed Brown and Mercer as expendable. By then, Brown's intense pace and nonstop typing had caught up with him. He suffered from carpal tunnel syndrome and sometimes seemed discouraged, likely due to his inability to put in the same hours on his computer. Mercer suffered from joint pain and sometimes missed work. Kononenko was heard badmouthing Brown and Mercer, one veteran recalls. After he discovered an error in the construction of the stock portfolio, Kononenko raised questions about whether Brown and Mercer should be running the company, Brown told at least one person. Simons defended the executives, but word spread of Kononenko's boldness. Complaints even emerged about Simons, who was spending less time around the office, yet still received about half the firm's profits. He doesn't do anything anymore, a staffer griped to Magerman one day in a hallway. He's screwing us. Magerman couldn't believe what he was hearing. He's earned the right to his enormous pay, Magerman responded. Soon, Kononenko was pushing a plan to shift points from Simons and members of the old guard to deserving newcomers and others. The idea divided the firm, but Simons agreed to implement a reallocation. Even that didn't quell the grumbling, however. The firm was changing, partly because some longtime staffers were leaving. After nearly a decade scrutinizing market patterns, Nick Patterson quit to join an institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and analyze another kind of complicated data, the human genome, to gain a better understanding of human biology. Soon, there was a Lord of the Flies feel to the place. Veterans worried that newcomers were targeting those at the firm with a lot of points or equity in the firm to free up money for themselves. Some of the Eastern Europeans liked to stay late at the office, 
charging the company for dinner, while discussing why Simons and others were paid too much, employees say. The next day, they'd gang up to mock the work done by others in the equities group. Quietly, two senior scientists on Brown and Mercer's stock team, Bella Polsky, the former D.E. Shaw executive, and a colleague named Pavel Wolfbane, began clandestine discussions to quit. Earlier, Renaissance's human resources staff had made a crucial mistake. When Belopolsky and Wolfbane became principals of the firm, they had been given non-disclosure and non-compete agreements. The pair hadn't signed the non-compete agreements, though, and no one had noticed. It gave them an opening. In July 2003, Belopolsky and Wolfbane delivered a bombshell. They were joining Millennium Management a rival firm run by billionaire hedge fund manager Israel Englander, who had promised them the chance to make an even larger fortune. Simons was gripped with fear, worried that Belopolsky and Wolfbane had millions of lines of medallion source code. Simons was sure his secrets were about to get out, crippling the hedge fund. They stole from us, he told a colleague in anger. Simons hardly had a chance to digest the departures before he was confronted with true tragedy. Nicholas Simons inherited his father's love of adventure. In 2002, a year after graduating from college, the young man, Simons' third eldest son, took a job in Kathmandu, Nepal's capital, working with hydroelectric power for the Nepalese government as a contractor for a U.S. consulting company. Nick fell in love with the city renowned as a gateway to the spectacular Himalayas and a paradise for mountain trekkers. Back on Long Island, Nick, who bore a resemblance to his father and shared his passion for hiking, told his parents he wanted to work in a third-world country, perhaps opening a medical clinic in Nepal to help its poorest residents. Nick would go on an around-the-world adventure with a friend and then return to learn organic chemistry and apply to medical school. A week before he was scheduled to come home, Nick stopped in Ahmed, a long coastal strip of fishing villages in eastern Bali, and a hub for freediving, an exhilarating underwater sport in which divers hold their breath until resurfacing, eschewing scuba gear. One warm July day, Nick and his friend took turns diving 100 feet down, enjoying the sea's clear, currentless conditions. The friends spotted each other, one up, one down, a freediving protocol meant to minimize the danger of the pressure changes and other serious threats far below the surface. At one point, Nick's partner's mask fogged up, so he swam ashore to adjust his gear. Gone for just five minutes, he returned but couldn't locate Nick. He was found on the bottom of the sea. When Nick's body was brought to the surface, he couldn't be resuscitated. In the middle of the night, Jim and Marilyn were awoken by a call from their son's friend. Nick drowned, he said. At the funeral, Jim and Marilyn were inconsolable, appearing pale and hollowed out. The mourner's darkness was amplified by a hard rainstorm that evening, and the kind of thunder and lightning a friend described as apocalyptic. Simons had an unswerving belief in logic, rationality, and science. He had played the odds in his trading, fighting a daily battle with chance, usually emerging victorious. Now Simons had suffered two tragic, unpredictable accidents. The events had been outliers, unexpected and almost inconceivable. Simons had been felled by randomness. 
Simon struggled to comprehend how he could have so much good fortune in his professional life, yet be so ill-fated personally. As he sat Shiva in his New York City home, Robert Frey, the Renaissance executive, drew Simon's close, giving him a hug. Robert, my life is either aces or deuces, Simon's told him. I don't understand. Seven years earlier, Paul's sudden death had been a crushing blow. Nick's passing was just as painful. Now, though, Simon's grief was mixed with anger, friends say, an emotion they rarely had seen in Simon's. He turned crusty, even ornery, with colleagues and others. He saw the death as a betrayal, a friend says. Dealing with intense pain, Jim and Marilyn spoke about purchasing a large part of St. John, moving to the island and disappearing. Fitfully, they exited their tailspin. In September, Jim, Marilyn, and other family members traveled to Nepal for the first time, joining some of Nick's friends in searching for a way to continue Nick's legacy. Nick had been drawn to Kathmandu and had an interest in medicine, so they funded a maternity ward at a hospital in the city. Later, Jim and Marilyn would start the Nick Simons Institute, which offers healthcare assistance to those living in Nepal's rural areas, most of whom don't have basic emergency services. At the office, Simons remained checked out. For a while, he contemplated retirement and spent time working on mathematics problems with his friend Dennis Sullivan, looking for an escape. It was a refuge, a quiet place in my head, Simon said. Renaissance executives couldn't gain his attention, creating a leadership void as the firm's rifts grew. Long-simmering tensions were about to burst to the surface. Brown and Mercer walked through the front door of Simons' home, claiming seats on one side of a long, formal dining room table. Magerman, Whitney, and others joined a bit later, grabbing spots around the table, with Simons pulling up a chair at the head. It was the spring of 2004, and 13 of Renaissance's top executives were meeting for dinner at Simons's 22-acre estate in East Setauket, Long Island. None of the group really wanted to be there that evening, but they had to decide what to do about Alexei Kononenko. By then, Kononenko's behavior had become a true distraction. He regularly ignored assignments from Brown and Mercer. When they scheduled a meeting to discuss his uncooperative behavior, Kononenko didn't show up. Someone close to Kononenko disputes how he and his actions have been portrayed by others who worked with him. Simons and the others were in a difficult bind, though. If they fired or reprimanded Kononenko and the half-dozen colleagues he directed, the group was liable to bolt, just like Belopolsky and Wolfbane. Their non-disclosure agreements were difficult to enforce, and while their non-compete contracts might prevent them from trading in the U.S., Kononenko and the others could return home to Eastern Europe, far from the reach of U.S. law. Wielding polished silverware, the executives dug into juicy steaks while sipping delicious red wine. The small talk died down as Simons turned serious. We have a decision to make, he said, which his tablemates understood to refer to Kononenko's non-collaborative conduct. Brown was energized and adamant, arguing that they needed to retain Kononenko and his group. They represented about a third of the researchers who analyzed stocks and were too important to lose. Besides, they had spent so much time training the group that it would be a shame to see them leave. 
He adds value, Brown said with confidence. The group is productive. Brown's view reflected the sentiments of some at Renaissance, who felt that while Kononenko ruffled feathers and could be unusually blunt, his behavior likely reflected the culture he had become accustomed to in Russia. Mercer said hardly anything, of course, but he seemed to agree with Brown and others at the table, voting to ignore Kononenko's infractions. Simons also seemed in favor of keeping the team. We can fire these guys, Simon said, but if they leave, they'll compete with us and make our lives harder. Simons didn't approve of Kononenko's behavior, but he thought Kononenko could be groomed into a team player and even emerge as an effective manager. He was a pain in the ass, and it was a difficult decision, Simons later told a friend. But he didn't steal from us, alluding to the alleged actions of Belopolsky and Wolfbane. As Magerman listened to the arguments, he tensed up. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. Kononenko's team had tried to get Brown and Mercer fired. They had forced Simons to take a pay cut and gave everyone a hard time, upending the collaborative, collegial culture that helped Renaissance thrive. Simons saw potential in Kononenko? Megerman wasn't standing for it. This is disgusting, he said, looking at Simons and then at Brown. If we don't shut them down or fire them, I'm quitting. Megerman looked over at Whitney, hoping for some support. He didn't hear anything. Whitney knew they were outnumbered. Privately, Whitney had told Simons he was leaving the firm if Alexei wasn't fired. Simons and the others were sure Megerman and Whitney were bluffing. They weren't going anywhere. A consensus was reached. Kononenko and his gang would stay. Soon, he'd even get a promotion. Give us time, David. We'll manage it, Brown said. We have a plan, Simons added, also trying to reassure Megerman. Megerman and Whitney filed out of the room, solemn and distressed. Soon, they'd formed their own plans. Close to midnight, after his staffers left, Simons returned to the quiet of his home. His firm was torn in two. Senior staffers were about to spill Medallion's most treasured secrets. Nicholas's death still haunted him. Simons had to find a way to deal with it all.